and welcome to another exciting episode of Much Language Such Talk. Today you're listening to me, Karine, and our volunteer, Berger. Berger is not a linguist, as her background is in neurobiology. She finished her PhD in psychiatry at the University of Edinburgh in the summer of 2020, which focused on the effects of bilingualism on the life, mind, and brain of autistic people. Currently, she is the engagement officer at the Patrick Wilde Center at the University of Edinburgh. Berger, hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It's a very gloomy morning, but I'm having a nice time with all my lights on inside. Together, we're going to be talking with Professor Rob Dunbar. He is the Chair of Celtic Languages, Literature, History, and Antiquities at the University of Edinburgh. His research interests also include Scottish Gaelic literature and culture in the 18th and 19th centuries and the Gaelic tradition in Canada. Before coming to Edinburgh, he was a senior lecturer in law at the University of Glasgow and a professor in Celtic and law at the University of Aberdeen. Additionally, Rob was the senior research professor at the University of Highlands and Islands and the research director of the Inter-University Social Research Project, a research collaboration originally established between the University of Highlands and Islands, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, and Glasgow, which conducts research to help inform public policy towards the maintenance and revitalization of Gaelic language and culture. As a native of Canada, Rob has been involved in Gaelic language development for over 20 years and has worked with international organizations such as the Council of Europe and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, national and subnational governments, including the National Assembly for Wales, on issues broadly relating to the maintenance and revitalization of minority languages and the protection of their speakers. Furthermore, Rob was a member of the Gaelic Language Board and Gaelic Media of Scotland. He was involved in the development of Scotland's 2005 Gaelic Language Act and the creation of BBC Alba, Scotland's Gaelic digital TV service. Hello, Rob. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, we're really excited. Great. We've mentioned this on the podcast before. We are based in Edinburgh, so we do hear about Gaelic. We're really excited to learn some more about it since surprisingly not as many of us in bilingualism matters actually speak Gaelic. So I'm very excited. Are you ready to jump right in? Absolutely. Awesome. Here we go. How did you develop your interest in languages? Well, I come from Toronto in Canada, which is famously multilingual or multicultural city. And even when I was a boy, which wasn't yesterday, the city was very diverse. And our street that I grew up on was very diverse. So I heard all sorts of languages pretty much every day. We had neighbors whose family languages were Italian, Serbo-Croat, uh, Romanian, Japanese, German. Our next-door neighbors and our closest friends were Jewish family. So when their daughters were preparing for a bat mitzvah, I saw them struggling to learn Hebrew. Their grandfather was a Russian Jew and spoke Russian and Yiddish. So we, we heard a lot of languages. Gaelic was in my family, and I had an uncle who would always greet us when he came to see us with a little bit of Scottish Gaelic. So that perhaps was the seed that later started to grow when I became a little older. The other thing about Canada is that it's an officially bilingual country. And when I was a boy, then in my teenage years, Canada just introduced a new Official Languages Act, which gave a much stronger recognition to French. There was a very significant recognition that French was a very important language. I took French from the age of 10. I'm not as fluent as I once was, but by the time I finished secondary school, I'd become very fluent in French and, and loved the language. At secondary school, I got to do a bit of Latin, but also did German. 
And uh, I didn't take Italian, which I wish I had in retrospect. My reasons were I was very goal-oriented in my teenage years. And in spite of the fact that there were many Italian speakers around me, and including many of my classmates, many of them had arrived from Italy with no English and, you know, were in um, English as second language transitional programs. My, my calculation was very childish in a way. I thought there's no way that I would do well in Italian with so many of my classmates who are native Italian speakers. But of course, they always told me that you should have taken it because we speak dialect. Many of them were from families from the south of Italy. But they said, you know, in, in the class, we're learning standard uh, Florentine Italian. And, um, you know, it's like a different language for us as well. So it, it was very much the multilingual mix that I grew up in and saw every day. But also the realization that language issues are, are really important. Again, my teenage years were also the period when Law 101, the Charter of the French Language, was introduced in Quebec. Language was a very divisive issue, and it was very much part of the push for an independent Quebec, which dominated the news both when I was at secondary school and at university. So I guess, you know, the issues surrounding languages, uh, the challenges that multilingualism and diversity pose, but also the huge benefits from it and the amount of color that diversity adds and richness that it adds to life. It's sort of a daily lived uh, part of our existence growing up. Wow, that is really amazing. It's so great to see how prevalent in your life so many different languages were. I knew Toronto was quite multilingual and very diverse and everything, but it's just really nice to hear just how many different languages you grew up around. Also to see that in high school, you were so goal-oriented and already thinking about the multilingual identity and policy. That's, <laughs> that's really amazing. I think at high school, all I wanted to do was sleep and watch TV. So well done. <laughs> you mentioned that your uncle would speak to you in Gaelic. How did he develop Gaelic then? Well, my grandparents were from Nova Scotia. And they were Gaelic speakers. I never knew my grandfather. He died when my father was a boy. He was a minor. And the family moved to Western Canada for work. So the children, you know, once they left Nova Scotia, they weren't exposed to the language as much. But he learned some phrases, some basic phrases. So he would always refer to us with the word magulam, he would say, which means my dear little boy. And uh, would occasionally greet us with kimarahau. How are you? And he didn't have much more Gaelic than that. But um, just hearing those words created that sense that we knew that my father's family background was Scottish from Nova Scotia. So that, I suppose, planted the seed. It wasn't until much later that I sort of began taking an interest in that. After I graduated, my first degree was in international relations at the University of Toronto. And when I graduated, I had the opportunity to go to Brazil for or the better part of a year. So I learned Portuguese. I lived in a, a city called Novo Hamburgo, which means New Hamburg. And many of the people that lived there had German or Polish ancestry, especially German ancestry. And a dialect of German still survived amongst the older people. And they were very interested in where my background was from. You know, Canada is an immigrant country. And it was at that point that I began thinking about where my family was from. I'd been to Nova Scotia, but I hadn't really thought too much about Gaelic or Scottishness. And it was at that point I began reflecting on my family's own story. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that Gaelic skipped a generation almost in your family. It seemed that your uncle obviously tried. At least. Yeah, and then you got interested in it. My father had a few words as well. When I started learning Gaelic, my father had a few words that he remembered. And he remembered hearing some Gaelic songs. 
he grew up in Alberta, but he went back to Cape Breton in Nova Scotia with his mother, my grandmother, who was a Gaelic speaker when he was quite a young boy, and heard a lot of Gaelic in his grandparents' house and remembered hearing some Gaelic songs and learned some words. He wasn't there long enough to learn much more than that, but uh, he had a little rhyme, Gidia Peck, Agus Gidia Moor, Ushkache, Agus Ushkafur, which means little boy, big boy, cold water, hot water. He was sort of beginning to learn some of the basics that I guess his grandparents or his mother taught him. Again, there were little bits of things, but I didn't really think too much about it until I started reflecting as a young adult. That's amazing, honestly, that it's so interesting also in a way how you left Canada, you went to another country, and at there it was the moment that you got to reflect as well. At what age did you start to learn Gaelic? I guess I was about 30 or 31. I went and studied law. And at that point, I, was, I knew I was interested in learning the language, but I wanted to finish that degree, get myself established in practice. And it was really, I guess, in about my first year practicing law that I decided that I was going to take the leap. And I signed up for a night school class. The Toronto Board of Education offered all sorts of adult learning courses. And they offered uh, three of the Celtic languages, Irish, Scottish Gaelic, and Welsh. So I signed up for Scottish Gaelic, and that really started me on my journey. But it was as an adult, and I think I've come to quite a high level of fluency in Scottish Gaelic. So if my story has any value at all, it perhaps is that as a person who's well into adulthood, it's still possible to become fully fluent and functional in another language. I know it's best for children to learn it at home, to have it reinforced in school, but I think becoming fluent can happen at any age. And I think it's very much a matter of hard work because I was wanting to become fluent in the language. I worked hard at it and tried to get as many opportunities to hear it and speak it as possible. Uh, there are many more opportunities now than there were some almost 30 years ago when I started on the journey. So that's one thing that has to be borne in mind. The other thing I learned, uh, both from learning French at school and some German, but also in Brazil, is that you can never become fluent in another language unless you're willing to make mistakes yes. and to laugh at your own mistakes and embrace your mistakes. And I made some spectacular mistakes in Brazil when I got there, trying to get to fluency in Portuguese. But I stuck with it. I laughed at my own mistakes and said, I just got to keep going. And I got to a high level of fluency in uh, Portuguese as well. But it's realizing that you can't learn anything, but certainly you can't learn a language. If you are not going to speak a language until you feel that you're perfect in it, you're not going to speak that language. Yes, definitely. I just find that so inspiring that you started really quite late compared to other people to learn Gaelic. Late in quotes almost. Like, like, exactly. It's really not like, that late. It's not, yeah. it's not but and that now it's, it is such a huge part of your career and your life. I find that really inspiring because I guess like many people would say, well, I mean, my late 20s, there's no point. Like even if I were to start now, it would just be like a tiny hobby on the side. And your uh, journey just shows that no, it, it can actually become something gigantic in your life. So I find that so inspiring. Thank you. It's one of the things we try to push as bilingualism matters as well, that there is no limit to age and when you can learn a language. My father was mid to late 20s when he started to learn English. 
So it wasn't until he moved to America in the 70s that he started to learn English. And that's a good point about mistakes as well. We, One of our other hosts, this is Brittany, has talked about it when she was learning Spanish. You can't be afraid of making mistakes. And sometimes you are lucky if you're able to move to the country and immerse yourself mm -hmm. there. No. Because if you're too afraid to make a mistake, you're never going to use the language. How are you going to learn? It's not going to happen. I have no problem making a fool of myself at this point <laughs> on my Finnish side, talking to my cousin's kids in Finnish because I speak like a three-year-old in Finnish. And they're like seven years old. And I'll be like, you school going to today? And they're just like, yeah. And I'm like, cool, good talk, good talk. <laughs> it's really important. It's so true. Like my English really improved when I moved to England um, because before then I would never want to use the language. I would, I mean, I, I could speak English, like school English, but I would never use it because I was afraid of making mistakes. Um, but when I moved to England, I didn't have a choice anymore. I had to use the language to survive. And that just really helped within a few months. I, I really got much better. That's exactly it. I mentioned that you're doing work on Gaelic in Canada. What does that work entail? Well, I do two sorts of work. Most of my work on Canada now involves literature, culture. I'm finishing two books on a Gaelic poet who emigrated from Tyree in the Inner Hebrides to Nova Scotia in the early 19th century. And I'm doing some work on other interesting figures. The only Gallic newspaper, proper Gallic newspaper, that ex ever existed for any period of time was a, a paper called Machtala, which means the Echo, which was published in Nova Scotia, in Cape Breton Island, between 1892 and 1904 for 12 years. And it came out on a weekly basis for most of its existence and laterally on a biweekly basis. Every week it had news, it had events, it had stories, it had songs, and all of the advertisements. There were mostly local businesses, you know, all in Gaelic as well. And the editor was a young man from Cape Breton. His family was from the Isle of Skye, named Jonathan G. McKinnon. And I've been doing a lot of work on McKinnon lately because I think he's a fascinating figure. He went on to do all sorts of other interesting things with the language. And he's sort of one of these culture heroes. Again, this shows the importance of faith in the future of the language. Nobody would have expected a 22-year-old man from a tiny rural community in 1892 to make the decision that he was going to single-handedly create a Gallic newspaper that would come out every week. But he did it for a long period of time. And it shows this determination and commitment and perseverance that I was talking about earlier. So I'm doing some work on him. But in terms of language, I continue to support efforts. There are really interesting things going on in Nova Scotia right now. The language, as I said, declined very significantly. And now there are only a few hundred native speakers. But there are a growing number of learners and young people between, say, 20 and 40. And the numbers have gone up dramatically. They're still small, but these people are people that have also come to a very high level of fluency and they're committed to using the language. Um, a few of them have their own children and are raising their children through the medium of the language. So it shows what's possible with some commitment and some inspiration. But after almost total neglect in recent years, the province of Nova Scotia has become more supportive. And I did some work with them and with the Gallic Council of Nova Scotia on what their strategy for essentially reviving Gaelic now was. This was back in 2007, 2008, 2009. And we looked to Scotland, obviously, should we be starting with Gaelic medium education or preschools? And there have been developments in, this, in these areas. Now there is some Gaelic being taught in the schools, but I was of the view that they probably should start with the sort of people that they have started with, with young adults. 
to get people who are adults coming to fluency because an adult who comes to fluency and is committed to the language um, has made an active choice that they want the language to be part of their repertoire and part of their identity. And that when they do that, you have a level of commitment that will result in them perhaps raising their own children through the language, but also acting as, as effective advocates. Children learning a minority language, you know, you see them at school, they get up on stage, they're very good ambassadors for the language, but they're, they're not really activists. This has been part of the strategy. They really started even before then, in about 2004, with a method, an interesting method of adult language acquisition, which involved, rather than teaching the language in the classroom setting, to do it in a very much informal way, in households with native speakers, where the language would be used conversationally. And this has helped to produce um, some highly competent speakers. The other thing that they did, which was very interesting, is they went to California. There's a scholar at the University of California, now retired, Leanne Hinton, who has done a lot of work with the revival of Californian Aboriginal or Indigenous languages, many of which were reduced to 10 or 15 or 20 speakers. And she set up these master apprentice programs where a young person would work with an old native speaker to develop fluency in a young person in the language. And they have adapted those programs in Nova Scotia, where now once a younger speaker has come up to a certain level of fluency, they're teamed up with an older remaining native speaker and learn from them. They learn language skills, they learn cultural skills, they work on song texts. For the older person, it can be beneficial because many of them, although native speakers, are not fully literate in the language. And so the learner will be helping them with literacy skills. And I think this is part of the reason why so many of these young people who I see now coming through in Nova Scotia have really excellent language skills and cultural skills. And Gaelic has become part of their identity. So I think there's a lot to be learned even in a case that's as marginalized and threatened as, as Nova Scotia. There's always reasons to be hopeful. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of Gaelic specifically, you mentioned that Gaelic is a Celtic language. And the Celtic family language group is I would, I, it's quite small. Is it only the three languages? Is that right? Is it Welsh, Irish, Gaelic, and Scottish Gaelic? There are six modern Celtic languages. There are two subfamilies. One are the so-called Goidelic languages, which include Scottish Gaelic, Irish, and Manx Gaelic, which is a revived language. The last native speaker died in 1974 or thereabouts. And then there are the Brythonic languages, Welsh, of course, which is in many ways the strongest of the Celtic languages, but Breton as well, which is still spoken by uh, fairly large numbers of people in Brittany, but they tend to be very much older. And then Cornish, which is closely related to the other two languages, to, uh, particularly to Breton. And it ceased to be spoken it died in the late 18th century, but it's been the subject of revival efforts. And there are speakers of Cornish as well. Um, and it now has a measure of recognition in Cornwall as well. So there's six Celtic languages and sort of two subfamilies. They're all Indo-European languages, which means that they're related to most other European languages, to the, the Romance languages, and the Germanic languages, and the Slavic languages, but distantly so. Oh, right. Wow. Okay. I... I did not actually realize that Cornish was a Celtic language, so that's uh, really something new to learn every single day. It's super interesting, so all these different features of language that you've just mentioned. 
Are these six languages, and mostly, well, Scottish, Gaelic, Irish, Gaelic, are they mutually intelligible? No. Uh, Scottish, Gaelic, and Irish, and Max are, are close. I don't think that a Gaelic speaker would necessarily understand Irish without a bit of prompting. But with a bit of prompting, I think it's possible. It's very interesting. My wife is um, from the Isle of Lewis. She's a native Gaelic speaker, and her parents are native Gaelic speakers. And on the Gaelic television channel, we now get some Irish programming. And um, what they do is they broadcast in the original Irish, and then there are subtitles in English rather than Gaelic. But my mother-in-law was very excited one night. She called me up and she said, are you watching the channel? And I said, no. And she said, I speak Irish as well. So she thought this would be interesting to me. She said, well, I was watching the show and I wasn't understanding everything, but I got the sense of what they were talking about. And I'd really like to learn Irish now. It's, it's, it's closer than I thought. And that's very true. So with a bit of training, you know, speaking is slightly greater challenge, but there are increasing numbers of Irish speakers who have an interest in and have become quite fluent in Scottish Gaelic. And similarly, many Gaelic speakers are very interested in Irish and, and have learned it. So I suppose making comparisons with other languages is a little different, but Scottish Gaelic and, and Irish, perhaps, a similar sort of relation to Spanish and, and Portuguese or Spanish and Catalan. But that strikes me as being the sort of degree of similarity. With some prompting, there is some mutual intelligibility. The difference between the Goidelic languages, Gaelic and Irish and Manx on the one hand, and the Brythonic languages, or the P-Celtic languages they're called, the Breton, Welsh, and Cornish, is greater. Those languages separated at a much earlier stage. Certainly, many of the grammatical features and the basic structures of the language are similar. If you speak one of the, say, Scottish Gaelic and go to learn Welsh, you'll find that in terms of understanding the basic sort of structure of the language, that you, you have a head start, but there are very big differences in vocabulary. Some, some vocabulary is similar, but you're really learning in quite a different vocabulary. That's really interesting. When learning Gaelic, what do people struggle most with? So coming from English or the other Romanic languages, because I am, I am trying and I have been trying to learn Gaelic for quite a while, but I'm not doing this very well. I'm not committing as much time as I should. And I do find that very difficult to learn. I don't know if it's the word order, or I don't know if it's that I never know when I should add the, the little H <laughs> to change the sound for the noun. But I do find it more difficult than when I learn English, for example. I think there may be structural features that are challenging. Fortunately, we don't have a different alphabet. If you were to learn Greek or the Slavic language or Arabic or something, you'd be struggling with that as well. My own view is that the biggest barrier, first of all, learning materials, which are much better now than they were even 20 years ago. But the other thing is the opportunities to practice the language and to hear the language spoken. Um, and that's improved quite a lot in recent years as well. But that's really a problem. Gaelic speakers, native Gaelic speakers are now, they've become much more used to learners. That wasn't always the case. And, you know, there's a lot of historical baggage as a minoritized language. You know, many learners will say that the native speakers are reluctant to use Gaelic or they'll switch to English as soon as you run into problems. And I've had all sorts of different reactions from people. I've been very lucky that many native Gaelic speakers have supported me and, and worked with me and put up with me as I come to grips with the language. But without a doubt, that, that I think is the biggest problem. 
And I contrast that with my time in Brazil. I was able to learn Portuguese fairly quickly, partly because I learned a bit in advance. I think having come to fluency in French helped. But the big advantage was this was in the early 1980s in Brazil. Not very many people there spoke English. And unlike today, we don't have the internet and, and everything that would have kept me in touch more with English. So I had no choice. I had to use Portuguese every day if I wanted to get a coffee or if I wanted to listen to the news. Or There was no English to be heard. And so it was really a proper immersion experience. And that really is not possible in Gaelic or in most of the other Celtic languages, even when you're in you know, the heartlands of the languages, the Western Isles or in the Gaeltacht in the Irish-speaking areas of Ireland or in Northwest Wales, you're still exposed to a considerable amount of English and, and every speaker essentially is bilingual. So I think it's the opportunity to make mistakes, as I said earlier, making mistakes is really important in learning a language. And I, I think that's the biggest problem. There may be structural issues but I'm not convinced that Gaelic is necessarily more complex than uh, German or Russian. You're not dealing with a difference in the sentence structure, but you're dealing with all sorts of, or Finnish, uh, Karine, where you have, what, 15 or 16 different noun cases, and a Finno-Ugric language, or Basque, which um, also has a large number of noun cases, or an indigenous language in North America. I once said to myself, if I ever go back to Canada, I'd like to learn one of the indigenous languages. But those languages are structurally completely different from Indo-European languages. Of course, in terms of vocabulary, you're learning a whole new vocabulary. So, you know, you could certainly find many languages that are structurally much more difficult. I think it's really the opportunities to hear and to speak and the quality of the learning materials, which have improved. You're totally right. I totally agree with that. Mainly, probably the main problem is just finding people to practice with and hearing the language. We can help you with that. Thank you. We, we can help you with that, Berger. Like, so, for Gallic learners who want to be immersed in the language, where should they go? Where is Gallic primarily spoken? Um, but also, are there other versions of Gallic spoken all around the world? I mean, of Scottish Gallic around the world? I think you've mentioned Canada. Good question. The language is still fairly widely spoken in the Hebrides, particularly in the Western Isles, and in parts of the Isle of Skye. There are still quite a few speakers in the Isle of Tyree. But in terms of day-to-day -day opportunities, you would probably want to go to the Western Isles or perhaps uh, Skye, particularly the north end of Skye. In, in the last census in the Western Isles, there was a majority, a bare majority, but a majority of people who spoke Gaelic. And you go to some of the rural districts in Southwest or in parts of the Isle of Lewis, you still have over 70% of the, the local population who are Gaelic speakers. And that will give you the greatest opportunities to hear and speak the language. But we also have to remember that there are concentrations of Gaelic speakers in, in urban areas. One of the biggest Gaelic-speaking areas is, is Glasgow, where there's something like 10,000 speakers, or over one-sixth of the speakers of Gaelic are in Greater Glasgow, at least speakers in Scotland. The difference is, of course, they're very scattered. They don't have local concentrations. And in Edinburgh, there are lots of Gaelic speakers, both native Gaelic speakers and, and learners. But you really, you have to find the networks of speakers to increase your opportunities. That's one of the challenges that all minority languages face, is, is developing stronger networks of speakers. In terms of where Gaelic was spoken, thanks to the history of the language, from the late 18th century right into the 20th century, there was large-scale emigration 
Yeah, it's part of my family story. The earliest settlements were in North Carolina and Georgia, and then in Upper New York State in the United States. And then in the late 18th century, Gaelic speakers turned their faces to what is now Eastern Canada, particularly Eastern Nova Scotia and Cape Breton Island, where my family emigrated to. My first ancestor, who was a Gaelic speaker, left Scotland. He was in a Highland regiment that was raised to fight for the British in the American War of Independence, and for their efforts was given land grant in Nova Scotia in 1784. So my son, who is now 13, he was born in Scotland, and my father was delighted to hear the first child in our family to be born in the old country since 1783, the year before uh, my ancestor Alexander Alliston Dunbar left Scotland. So there was large, large scale immigration to Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, but in the 19th century, many other parts of Canada such that by the end of the 19th century, the Canadian census of 1901, there were at least 90,000 Gaelic speakers in Canada. That made it the fourth most widely spoken language in Canada at the time. It's estimated that at the time of Canadian Confederation, the birth of the country, 1867, that Gaelic was the third most widely spoken language. And in Nova Scotia in 1901, there were 50,000 of those 90,000 speakers. And work has been done in local areas, but in many districts, particularly in Cape Breton, between 80 and 100% of the population at that time, a little over a century ago, was Gaelic speaking. The languages declined rapidly in Canada. There are still some native speakers left. I saw a news story just recently that the last native speaker of Gaelic in the province of Quebec uh, just passed away. She'd been born in 1926. And there are still native Gaelic speakers who are fifth, sixth generation, sometimes seventh generation Canadians in Cape Breton Island. The language has changed in some ways in Nova Scotia. The, you know, the language has picked up North American influences. So instead of the Gaelic word that's commonly heard here for a shop, which is boo, in North America, in Nova Scotia, you tend to hear people talking about the store. We went down to the store rather than to the shop. And there's been some assimilation of North American English. But what you do see is that because of the patterns of emigration and settlement, people tended to leave thanks to the Highland clearances and economic changes in the Highland. Would you mind explaining what the Highland clearances is just really quickly? Sure. From the late 18th century, there were major changes in the patterns of estate administration in the Highlands. It's got a long history and a complicated history. It has a lot to do with the last Jacobite risings in 1745 and 1746. But the late 18th century, the landlords in the Highlands, many of them, wanted to increase their income from their estates. They had a large number of Gaelic-speaking tenants but the landlords felt they could generate higher rents um, through the introduction, first of all, of large-scale sheep farming. And to accommodate that, people were removed from their traditional settlements. And after the end of the Napoleonic War, the population became what historians would describe as a, a surplus population. Far too many people on the estates, given the new economic policies of the landlords. So people were then encouraged and sometimes forced off the land. And huge numbers of Gaelic speakers through the course of the 19th century, especially, essentially had to, to emigrate. And Canada became the prime destination, although as the 19th century progressed, uh, they moved to other parts of the British Empire, particularly New Zealand and Australia. 
But Canada has the strongest links because of this mass migration. But when people left, they tended to leave in extended family groupings because whole communities were being moved from their land and they would settle together. And therefore, one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. John Shaw, who's done a great deal of work on Gaelic folklore and oral tradition in Nova Scotia, has described the process of migration as being more of a hiatus than a break. The communities were able to reestablish themselves quite quickly. And dialects survived. It was an area of Cape Breton that was heavily settled by the people from Lewis and Harris, the Outer Hebrides. And when you speak to those people, you would swear that, that you were speaking to somebody from Lewis or Harris. I remember a few years ago speaking to one of the older fellows from the North Shore that I knew, who finally got to return to Scotland and to the Isle of Lewis, where his ancestors came from. And he said to me, I finally got back to the old country, and I guess our Gaelic isn't very, it's okay. And I said, well, of course it's okay. Why would you think it wasn't? He said, well, I don't know. We just spoke country Gaelic that my parents taught me. But when I got to Lewis, I was speaking to a Gaelic speaker. And they said, when did you leave the island? That's amazing. And he said, um, oh, a couple of weeks ago, meeting Cape Breton Island. <laughs> and his, the person with whom he was conversing thought, when did you leave Lewis? And so he said, no, no, no. Uh, oh, you live in Nova Scotia now, I know. But when did you leave Lewis? And he said, well, I never left Lewis. I just arrived in Lewis. And he said, I, I've never been to Lewis before. Oh, well, your parents must have been from Lewis. No, no, they weren't from Lewis. They'd never, never seen Lewis. And I think he had to go back to the original settlers, which was about four generations earlier. So the dialect survived. And it was partly because of isolation and the fact that people settled together. That's, that's amazing. So I wouldn't just say that there are distinct forms, although, as I say, all of the dialects survived in Nova Scotia. You have English words that have been assimilated, but they're certainly mutually intelligible. And I think Gaelic speakers from here, when they speak to Gaelic speakers in Cape Breton, are quite amazed, first of all, at how good the Gaelic is, sometimes by how nicely idiomatic it was. Um, again, these people lived in relative isolation and they didn't have, you know, the number of neologisms that um, crept into to the language here, but certainly fully mutually intelligible. That's so cool, honestly. Also, the fact that the idioms have stayed pretty much the same. You mentioned a lot of places where um, Gaelic is spoken and has like a larger population, so the Outer Hebrides or Northern Sky, the Isle of Lewis. Would you say that in those areas, or are there any areas where Gaelic is spoken more than any other language, that it's the predominant language? It's difficult to say. Um, there's been recent research done, but the most recent research was published uh, just last summer by researchers at the University of the Highlands and Islands and showed the, the very weak state of the language, particularly amongst young people. So I think we could say that even in the strongest communities, another piece of research was done in about 2010, 2011 by researchers at the Gaelic College, Solvorostek, in one particular community, very strongly Gaelic-speaking community in Lewis. And it showed again that amongst older people, the language was used, but with younger people, uh, not so much. And very uh, decreasing percentages of young people are speaking the language. And so when you have such a mixed linguistic environment and then the ever-presence of English through the media, certainly when I'm in the Hebrides, based on my first-hand observations, there are plenty of opportunities to speak Gaelic, and you will be in Gaelic-speaking environments. But I wouldn't say that there's very many places left where the presence of English is not felt. And 
again, the strength of your social networks and so forth can determine it. You can certainly spend a good part of your day uh, speaking nothing but Gaelic. But I would say in every day, most Gaelic speakers will use some English for some purposes. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. English has made itself very dominant globally, and not even just in the countries where it's spoken, but it is there is a heavy hand of English definitely everywhere, that's for sure. Absolutely. So one of the biggest things that really affects a language that you see a decrease in speakers, one of the things that really affects that is the, the society's attitude towards the language and how it's viewed. Across Scotland, what are generally people's attitude towards Gaelic? Is it different region by region, or is it just kind of a general feeling across the country? There's some very interesting research done by colleagues at Edinburgh University in about 2011-2012, based on the Scottish Social Attitude Survey. This is a survey that's done regularly to provide evidence for government decision-making. And colleagues, uh, Professor Lindsay Patterson and Dr. Fiona Hanlon, they developed a range of questions for the first time on Gaelic. And this has given us some very good evidence of what attitudes were at that time and surprised me and I think many others. Historically, I think it's fair to say that there was a certain amount of hostility towards the language in Scotland, a view that it was a dying language that was only associated with the highlands of Scotland, very critical views um, that are very deeply historically ingrained going back to the late Middle Ages, the sort of the lowland highland um, the split in, in Scottish society. And the marginalization of Gaelic as part of, you know, an Anglophone agenda, of, you know, the supposed inferiority of certain languages and their speakers. It was a very strong ideology, um, certainly when I arrived in Scotland in 1995. And even before that, in Canada and Toronto, and, you know, I was learning Gaelic and you'd meet um, Scots who had no immediate or necessary connection with Gaelic. You know, they'd sort of been used by it. They'd think this is sort of a twee language, etc., that wasn't really part of Scottish identity. And the most interesting things in the social attitude survey research, very rigorous, scientifically sound research, showed that there was a majority of people, a very significant majority of people who thought that Gaelic was important to Scottish identity and that it should survive. By the same token, much smaller percentages thought that they themselves should learn it. They didn't think that it was necessary for their personal identity. They, you wouldn't be more Scottish by learning Gaelic, but they did recognize that it is important. And there are questions about things like Gaelic medium education, Gaelic signage. And the majority felt that certainly bilingual signage and Gaelic medium education as a right should be available, at least in the highlands and islands. There was significant support for signage and Gaelic medium education across the country. So I think those, that's very interesting. I think the status of the language has changed, that there is greater recognition of the language. And I think this is partly as a result of language policy and, and partly as a result of media with now a Gaelic language channel. For the first time, that 99% of the population of Scotland who don't speak Gaelic, they can hear the language, they see it, they know it exists, and um, they may occasionally watch programs on, on the channel. They see that Gaelic medium education exists in, in different parts of Scotland, including Glasgow and Edinburgh. And I think it's like anything else, any, any other form of social views. When something is unknown, people suspect or fear it. Whereas when you see something and experience it, 
then the fear and perhaps hostility goes away. And when you see that the Gallic community is a very diverse community and that there are still lots of young people who speak the language, some of the stereotypes, uh, I think, can't stand up to, to the evidence of one's own ears and eyes. So I think aspects of policy have helped to change views. But because we don't have you know, similar sort of research from your earlier periods, it's difficult to say whether the results in 2011, 2012, they represent a, a significant change. But my gut feeling, and I think that of, uh, of other people working on the language, is that these are hopeful signs, that attitudes have changed, become much more supportive. And finally, we see that at the political level. When the Gaelic Language Act was passed by the Scottish Parliament in 2005, it was passed unopposed, uh, support for it in all parties. And the level of debate on Gaelic then and since has always been very supportive across the political spectrum. There was an attempt to pass a Gaelic Language Act in about 1981, led by the uh, Member of Parliament at Westminster for the Western Isles, and the legislation got nowhere. But the, the level of debate and the hostility towards the language by members, Scottish members of Parliament was quite striking. And we never see that sort of, uh, that sort of rhetoric from politicians of, of any party today. And uh, I think that sort of broad cross-party consensus that Gaelic is important and valuable, that also is an indication that things have changed. That's a really good point about the fear of the language and the policy. We were talking with a researcher, this is Professor Itziar Laka from the Basque country. And Basque is one of these types of minority languages, which has been forced down by the dictatorship um, that happened in Spain and try to, they try, where they tried to basically get rid of these languages, Basque and Galicia and Catalan, all of them. And Itziar was talking specifically about how it's the language policies and having the resources. Once you have that, you get past that fear. And then at, once you can get past the fear, that's when your language starts to come back. So that I think that's a very good point, that once we can get with these policies, it's our step-by-steps going forward. Yeah. So if we look at Scotland today in 2020, you said we have the Gaelic Language Act, we have the, the BBC Alba, we have the, the schools. Do you think that's the language is now promoted enough or would you like to see more changes to promote the language even more? Uh, I'd still like to see more changes. Um, We do have, as you say, uh, significant institutional supports. We have an excellent radio service. The Gaelic Channel needs additional funding. If you've watched it, you know that there's a high level of repeat programming. And there's some debates about things like subtitling and so forth. I've done a fair amount of work on minority language media, and I think it's safe to say that compared to any other minority language community in Europe of of similar size, uh, we're in a a very enviable position. Uh, Very few linguistic minorities of about 60,000 speakers have a a standalone television channel that broadcasts about seven hours a day and provides an excellent news service and so forth. And the radio service is also very good, about 94 or so hours of radio broadcasting per week. And so it could be better, but uh, those supports are in place. Uh, there have been developments in terms of Gaelic medium education. We still have challenges in terms of continuity. Gaelic medium at the primary level is now well-developed and is growing. It's growing in places like Glasgow and Edinburgh. Recently, in the Western Isles, the council has now taken the decision that uh, uh, Gaelic medium education will be the default position, uh, so that unless parents choose 
English medium education, it will be presumed that their children will go into Gallic medium education. Well, that's a very significant development as well. But there's questions about continuity. The Gallic medium at secondary level is not nearly as, as developed. Um, we still have very small numbers of schools. Most of us think that having a standalone school is important because then you can create a fully Gallic medium environment. As in Canada, where French medium schools in English-speaking provinces uh, exist, they tend to be a focus of the community as well, and a hub for, for wider language use and language-based activities. So there are still developments to take place. The Gallic Language Act um, created a system whereby we have a language board now, Board de Gallic, and it can require public agencies, public authorities, to create what are called Gallic language plans, which they set out how they will use the language and how they'll support the language. Um, doesn't necessarily create any rights to the use of the language, um, something that exists in other countries. In my own view, too many of these plans have been too weak. Um, they haven't imposed significant enough obligations, and they also have not been implemented with the degree of urgency that they should. These are political questions at the end of the day. So I think that's one thing all of us would like to see is much more aggressive approaches. With regard to the situation of the language in its heartlands, there's no question that uh, the language faces real challenges there. My own view is that um, you know, further erosion would be tragic and dangerous. The solutions are not so easy. What do you think Gaelic will look like? What do you hope it will look like? Maybe I'll start with what I hope it would look like. Um, I hope that the numbers of speakers will have increased that the language will have uh, stabilized in its heartland areas and begun to grow and be used not as the sole language. I don't uh, think that that will happen anytime soon, but it will become a wider language of greater networks um, and contacts in those areas, and, and that there will be greater opportunities to speak Gaelic in, in all parts of the country. My hope is that, you know, that the system of education will continue to develop, um, that a proper system of support for learners of the language will be in place uh, so that some of the problems uh, that you face, Benajad, uh, will be further reduced. You know, that, that we still don't have a proper uh, strategy for Gallic learners. There's been lots of improvements in materials and, and so forth that I talked about. And uh, resources, online resources, are much better now. Um, but we still don't have a proper strategy for, for learners. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will be part of, of the mix as well. And then we'll begin to see, you know, a greater social use of the language um, in all parts of the country and a greater embracing of the language more generally. Uh, more people who may not feel a close family linked to the language, nonetheless saying that it's really an important and interesting part of our culture and I want it to be more part of our culture. I'm, you know, living in Edinburgh. Um, my son goes to the Gaelic school, but he plays football on a football team here. You know, most of the little kids, they don't really know much about Gaelic because they've never been told anything about it in the school or the media. And I'd really like to see that change. I'd like to see people understand a bit about the language. All students understand if they're not being educated through the medium of language, that they have more opportunities to learn it, and they know that it's a living part of the country's students. So that's what I hope for. In terms of what I expect, not quite so rosy uh, as all of that, I expect that 
there will continue to be some declines in numbers of speakers. I expect that there will be some further weakening of the language in the heartland areas. But I also expect that if politicians and policymakers are as serious as they say they are, that um, the signs of these trends will have been reversed, that much more uh, supportive policies at a national and local level will be put in place. And uh, to me, language, particularly the fate of minority language, is always very much a political question, and it will depend on the commitment of the political classes in the country. Um, and it'll also depend on the ability of Gaelic speakers to organize and supporters of Gaelic to organize and mobilize themselves um, and to demand more and continue to make the case. But having worked with minority languages um, in many parts of Europe over, over 20 years now, we all share many of the same challenges. And the work is in many ways frustrating and never-ending. And people just have to be prepared for that, uh, for the disappointments that come, and the frustrations that come. And I hope that the sort of resilience that speakers of minority languages will need and determination are some of the values that we can, can communicate to the next generations that come behind us, that same love for the language and the communities that speak it, but also that sense that there are going to be roadblocks, there are going to be frustrations, there are going to be challenges. Uh, we just have to be prepared for that and not expect a silver bullet, not expect an easy solution to the problems, but that there are other communities elsewhere which share our goals and our experiences uh, that we can draw strength from. Yeah. You mentioned that you know the status of Welsh and Wales um, is different, but it's all of my Welsh friends. It has been so great that just to see when they get together that they will like just start speaking to each other in Welsh. Like I would love to see that here. And I've had that opportunity once. We I was at a workshop for that was um, co-hosted by the University of Highlands and Islands. During the break, I was going to turn to the person next to me. But he managed to turn to the person next to him a little bit faster. And all of a sudden, all the four people at the table I was sitting at were speaking to each other in Gaelic. And I was like, I have never experienced this before. It was a really amazing moment because I had never seen such a fluid conversation happen in the real world like that. I had seen people say phrases. I had seen things in the media, but I had never seen it in just like that. And I wish that that I really hope as well that that can become more common that these, you know, people proficient speakers, we will just see them around and about because once you see them around, then I think that as well, that increases the visibility of the language. And then more people will have an idea of what Gaelic is and what needs to be done. So let's definitely be optimistic and hope, but realize that, yes, there is a lot of work still to be done. Well, absolutely. I mean, without, without optimism, without optimism, we're in trouble. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, that's, that's my greatest fear, actually, that people especially native speakers, will uh, say, it's too late, things can't be done, or the decline of the language is inevitable. And I guess that's the fear when we do research on the state of the language, that we communicate our messages in a, a measured way. Uh, because when we get bad news, sometimes it can be very dispiriting to campaigners and to speakers themselves. And we have to be able to tell a variety of stories that allow us to continue to be 
courageous and committed um, in spite of the frustrations that will inevitably face. It's a, every minority language faces these. Yes, exactly. Well, we've come to our final question. You mentioned that you've gotten the chair, you're working on a book about Gaelic poems and something that I think is really important. Also, if we're trying to bring young people into the language, I actually have a friend of mine when I posted to social media, if anyone had any questions for this episode, a friend of mine from high school, actually, it was just like, I've been learning Gaelic for the last five years. Oh, my God. And I was like, that's so cool. It's so random, but awesome. If you could, is there a book or a movie, a TV show, a musician or any music or an artist that is part of Gaelic or talks about Gaelic culture that you uh, would recommend or who or what would you recommend? Oh, that's a that's a good question. In terms of books, um, we now have a growing number of Gaelic books, you know, Gaelic publishing is receiving more support than it has. So now we have, you know, a significant number of Gaelic novels and so forth, but most of them have not been translated. So for a non-Gaelic speaker, they wouldn't be accessible. But there are some good bilingual collections. There's an excellent um, anthology of Gaelic, mainly poetry, but other texts, including some prose texts and also some forms of Gaelic oral narrative um, that was published just last year by close friends and colleagues, my colleague, uh, Professor Wilson McLeod in our department at Edinburgh, and my old friend, Dr. Michael Newton, who's in the United States, they published a book called Anul Asarge, The Highest Apple. There's a publisher named Francis Boutel, who has published a series of bilingual editions of minority language texts. Um, so there's one for Galician, um, Catalan, um, as I recall, Manx, Welsh, uh, etc. And he's committed to minority language literature, but this is uh, in that series. And it gives an excellent overview of the Gaelic literary tradition, both oral and, and written. So, I can give you the link if you want to spread the word. Uh, it would be a great introduction to anybody to the literature. There are so many great Gaelic singers, and it would be uh, almost unfair of me to name uh, any one or two uh, without offending other friends, I mean, <laughs> Marianne Kennedy, uh, Margaret Stewart, um, Mary Smith, um, Ronald Lightfoot, Art Cormac. Um, here I've started and I'm going to get myself in trouble because there are other people I really love. Uh, Mary Jane Lavin in Nova Scotia, one of my old friends, has done a wonderful job in uh, using the Gaelic tradition of Nova Scotia. Uh, so I would recommend it. Given my loyalty to Canada, I would recommend uh, Mary Jane Lamond, any, any of her CDs. Um, the other singer I really love here is uh, Kathleen McInnes from South West. But the School of Scottish Studies at the University of Edinburgh has, um, since the 70s, put out a series of recordings taken from the archival recording. They're called the Scottish Tradition Series, and a number of them feature Gaelic material. There's an excellent early, there's originally a Final recording, it's now available in CD called Music from the Western Isles, for example. Uh, but there are many others in this series that are fantastic and some great stuff in Scots as well. And in terms of movies and television, well, there's now a Gaelic television channel, so there's lots of good stuff there. There's a very good current affairs program called Yorpa, which is about European current affairs. That's worth watching. It's now been a few years, but there, uh, there are a few Gaelic films, but one that I'm particularly fond of is called Shach, The Inaccessible Pinnacle, and it starred one of our greatest living Gaelic writers, um, Angus Peter Campbell, but also a young boy 
who is now an adult. He did a music degree at Edinburgh, and he's a fantastic ambassador for Gaelic, a fantastic musician named Patrick Morrison, who comes from Grimsay, North Uist in, in the Hebrides. Patrick is now an adult. He's in his 20s, um, and I always think of him as this lovely little fellow who did such a splendid job as a, I don't know, he must have been seven or eight in this wonderful movie. But now he's taller than I am. And he's still a lovely looking fellow and a, and a lovely, lovely guy uh, altogether, a wonderful ambassador for the language. But Shaft is great, a feature length movie, beautifully done with um, fine acting performances by these two uh, enormously talented, creative contemporary Gaelic speakers, one a little older, I guess Peter, and one a little younger. Both have a good University of Edinburgh connections. Uh, I guess Peter did a degree at Edinburgh in the early 1970s. And uh, he was encouraged in his Gaelic poetry by probably the greatest Gaelic poet of the 20th century, uh, Sorley MacLean, who was a writer in residence at Edinburgh at the time. And uh, then Patrick, more recently, is another Edinburgh project. So Edinburgh can be proud of uh, uh, the film and these two uh, splendid, splendid creative talents as well. So there, there you go. Long-winded answer, as is usual for me. It, it now means that we have things to do this weekend. Yeah. So it's <laughs> so much research. Oh, man, I'm so excited. I will need to ask you if you could spell everything for me. That's the one thing, because I do not trust myself to spell in any language. So I will need those as well. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Really amazing to just see how Gaelic has traveled across the world, to see how you've traveled with Gaelic and how your family's been a part of it and you coming back and, you know, you're, uh, it's just been really inspiring and it has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you for asking me. It's been a real pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed listening to us talk with Rob about Gaelic and language policy and revitalization. If you'd like to learn more about Rob, his work, and his research, you can find a link to his university page in the description. Also, you can find links to all of the musical and artists that he has mentioned throughout our transcript, which you can find on our website. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you've learned some amazing facts. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and... Hasta luego. Hey, pa!